I actually lived in Kentucky for three years. I didn't get bit by that bug, but I, I certainly like to, uh, I certainly like what's going on there. So, hey, if you have your Bibles with you, please open up to Genesis chapter 15, please. Genesis chapter 15. If you don't have your Bibles with you, that's fine. I'm going to have it on the screen uh, behind me. Uh, the translation might be a little bit different than you're used to, but uh, it, it's uh, all the same meaning, and we're landing on the same runway. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis 16. Did I say 15 before? I meant 16. I'm sorry. Genesis 16. We're slowly making our way through this, and, and uh, today we're going to be talking about shortcutting faith. You know, at home, I have this, uh, this old set of VHS tapes. And we're talking ancient here. Uh, I bought them at the turn of the millennium. And it's this, uh, this four-tape series from the History Channel. And it's titled something like uh, The Hundred Most Influential People in, in This, uh, at that time, Current Millennia. And so it would talk about people like, uh, like Galileo and Oppenheimer and Einstein and Shakespeare and Bach and Mozart and, and uh, uh, Alexander Fleming and all these, these, uh, these type of people. And the number one person that was the most influential from the year uh, 1001 all the way to 1999 really was no surprise. It was Johannes Gutenberg who uh, created the, the printing press, and because of him, our, our world has, has changed. But there was one individual, as I look back on that list, that was not mentioned, and he has radically changed my life and your life as well. His name is Percy Spencer, Anybody? Yeah, yeah. Why was Percy Spencer, I think, one of the most influential people? Because he invented the microwave. Oh, how important is the microwave, right? You know, we, go, we went from a time of having to take uh, a water in a kettle and boil it and throw your hot dogs on, and you'd be waiting 15 minutes. You can cook a hot dog in less than a minute now because of the microwave and, and so many other things. Uh, the microwave is the perfect luxury in our fast-paced lives that don't want to slow down at all. You know, we don't like to wait for anything these days. Everything is, is, is instant, uh, whether it's books or movies or games or, or, or food and so much more. I mean, even, even Uncle Ben's Minute Rice is behind the times at this point. We want it now and we want it all. Unfortunately, that mindset of wanting everything right now bleeds into our, our lives of faith, and it, it infects our, our hearts. And faith is meant to be uh, more like being placed in a slow cooker. It takes time. It needs to uh, marinate a little bit. And, but in the end, end, it's absolutely perfect. But what we want to do is we want to open up that door, throw our faith in, shut it, put it on high, and boom, all of a sudden we are mature in our faith and we think that we should have it all together. We want to be mature now. We want to see God's promises uh, realized in our lives right now. We, we don't want to wait for what we think uh, God's plan is because we want it right now. And what happens uh, in our faith when we tend to microwave that rather than put it into uh, a slow cooker, it's what happens a lot of times when, uh, when I stick something in the microwave and, and don't put it on the right setting. It either explodes or, or it burns. 
And at that point, that food is no good anymore. It has to get thrown out and you have to start over. And so a burnt faith doesn't get us anywhere either. So instead, we need to follow Jesus in faith at the pace that he sets for us. In our text this morning, we're going to see one example of microwaved faith and see what it means to us today, but also see how Jesus Christ uniquely uh, meets us in that spot and helps us get to where we need to be to find faith in a slow cooker, totally appetizing and satisfying. So let's look in Genesis chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Abram's wife Sarai had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave, perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan for 10 years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. And when she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, Here, your slave is in your hands. Do whatever you want with her. And then Sarai mistreated her so much that she, being Hagar, ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and you will have a son. You will name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all of his relatives. So she named Uh, The Lord who spoke to her, you are Elroy. For she said, in this place, I have actually seen the one who sees me. That is why the uh, the well is called Be'er Lahai Roy. It is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son and named, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. To him. Let's pray. Father, we want to ask that as we see uh, Sarai uh, shortcutting faith, microwaving faith, that you uh, would help us to avoid that plight and that we would see Jesus and that we would slow down our, an- our anxious hearts, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. So if we want to avoid having a microwaved faith, one in which our faith is, is, is burned, it's crucial to see two things this morning. And the first is, is that we have to resist shortcutting God's plan. We must resist shortcutting God's plan for our lives. So what do you do 
when you are so certain of God's plan for your life, but it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to materialize. It doesn't seem to come to fruition. The easy answer would be for us to say something like, well, I guess I just got my signals crossed and I, and I read things wrong. Perhaps that wasn't God's plan for my life. But that doesn't always happen. Sometimes what ends up happening is that we convince ourselves that the stakes are too high and that we are convinced that God's, uh, God's plan is uh, to actually shortcut or cheat the process he has for us to grow in Christ-likeness. We don't want to think about it in that sort of way, but that's typically how it tends to happen. You know, I read an article this week about a marathon runner who shortly after the beginning of the marathon uh, dipped out of the race and chilled out for a while and then jumped back in the race with just a couple of miles left. And she was caught because the chip in her, uh, in her racing bib never uh, found her at any of the checkpoints. And so throughout the race, she was just chilling out. And then she comes to the finish line almost not even sweating. She had cheated the process in order to get what she wanted. I found out this week that if you want to have an online platform, and what I mean by that is if you want to be Facebook famous or, or Instagram famous, or if you want to be this big uh, YouTube star, uh, you can actually buy your way to become one of those. If you have just $150, you can get 30,000 views on your YouTube channel. If you uh, have just 30 bucks, which is a modest amount of money, you can get 500 likes on your Facebook page. And if you want to be a, a big-time spender, you can spend $1,700 in order to buy one million followers on Twitter. Totally going against well, this, this organic growth in that. And Christian leaders are, are not immune to this sort of, uh, this sort of temptation as, uh, either because uh, just a few years ago, there was a, a megachurch pastor, if I said his name, you would know exactly who I'm talking about, that was removed from his position as a senior pastor and the leader of a big evangelical organization because he, he hired a firm to buy so many copies of his books in order to skew the algorithms to make it look like he was a New York Times bestseller when in fact he wasn't. It's just this organization had bought all of these, uh, these books. And when we face uncertainties, we're tempted to do this sort of the same thing as uh, shortcutting or cheating or uh, speeding up the process. And, and we're not the first ones to do this. Abram and, and Sarai, they fall into this as well. Remember Abram, he had, led, he had gotten the call from, from God to go from uh, the land of Babylon to the land of Canaan, a place that he knew nothing about, from a God that he knew uh, not at all, and that the land would be his and that his descendants would, would own the land and that nations, in fact, would, would come from him. And he responded very positively, and he moved, and he had sacrificed a lot. He had lost quite a bit. And it's been 10 years now that he is waiting in this land of Canaan. He is 86, and his wife is 77. 
And this goes back to what is the big problem here? God has promised him a child. And yet this child hasn't come. And they are uh, ever increasing in their age. And this is becoming more and more uh, impossible. It's, it's already impossible. And so naturally, Sarai begins to question the fact that she trusts this promise, but she is not seeing it in her life. And she realizes that this promise was never given to her. This promise was given to her husband. And so she thinks that, that she's saying that I was given a curse, but yet he was given the promise. I'm the reason that this is happening. And God, if you really cared about me, then we would see this happening. It's been 10 years. How long would you wait for God's promises? Six months? A year? Two years? A decade? A lifetime? For Sarai, it's the 11th hour, and she's willing to do anything for this. So look in verse 2. Sarai said to Abram, Since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. So Sarai, she, she appeals to this ancient law. This is not a Jewish law. It's more of an ancient Near East law that it was perfectly legitimate at that time uh, if you were a female and unable to conceive for your husband to have a servant or some sort of hired person in order to uh, make that, uh, that, that happen for you and your family. The, the child would be yours, although uh, there would be certain things that would need to happen in order to, uh, to make that, uh, that work. It was sort of an ancient way of, of a surrogacy, someone else bearing the children for... Uh, for this, this couple. And it's interesting when we think about the psychology of desperation because when you are, are so desperate for something that you are so sure should be yours, you will be surprised by the kinds of things that you will start thinking and doing that you never thought possible. You see, Sarai here, she not only hands her servant over to her husband which she probably never imagined happening. But notice also that she adopts a less-than-human perspective on who this Hagar is. This isn't an individual that's made in the image of God. Rather, this is a baby-making machine. She's just, uh, she is just a, a, a figure that is a means to an end. And she's completely lost her sense of seeing Hagar as a human being. And when we're desperate, when we feel at our end, especially if we think it's a holy ambition, we are going to feel completely justified in manipulative tasks, uh, uh, tactics, passive-aggressive means of achieving what it is we want, and other sinful means, meanwhile putting a mask on it and saying that it's righteous. And we forget that the means do not always justify the ends. Sometimes God wants us to go through struggle and to go through pain in order to make us who he wants us to be. And even though this was legally legit, she could, she could absolutely do this. If you pay attention, you can see how Moses, our author here, in describing this, subtly 
shows us, and it should be completely obvious, that this is a really bad idea. This is not going to go well for uh, Sarai and Abram. Uh, because, and, and he shows us this by relating it to the Garden of Eden way back in Genesis chapter 3. If you remember, when Eve was tempted in the garden, she saw the fruit and saw that it was, that it was good. And the language there is that she took of it and she gave some to her husband And we remember all of that language from Genesis chapter 3. He passively let this happen. Now look in verse 3 here. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and what does she do? The same thing Eve did. Gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. So the fruit here is Hagar. And she was given to Abram, Abram listened to the advice of his wife and passively said, all right, well, let's just make this happen. I don't think it was a lustful thing in his mind. It was just, this is what we have to do to get it done. And because he didn't stand up to this, everything begins to unravel. Now, in your pursuit of what you think needs to happen, how much of it is you listening to really bad advice? And, and, and having it sound really good. The power of persuasion is very powerful. When I was a server, uh, when I was in seminary, I was a server at Famous Dave's, and one of the things that they would encourage you to do, this is at all restaurants, is do something called upsell. And when you upsell, you're trying to sell things that are more expensive, uh, particularly in liquor sales. Uh, if they uh, ask for one thing, you would want to suggest Uh, the same kind of stuff, just a more expensive value. This is exactly why whenever you sit down at a restaurant, they say, can I interest you in an appetizer? Or are you saving room for dessert? Why are they doing that? Not to fulfill you, but to raise the bill higher. It gives them a greater tip and it, uh, it brings more money into the restaurant. And so... Uh, they understand that the power of persuasion is very powerful. But if you are on a budget, uh, this is not a healthy thing. But it seems so right at the time, doesn't it? And so I think Sarai here had the best intentions. And again, she's not doing something um, legally wrong. However, the part of this ancient law in the ancient Near East that she didn't read about was the fact that there were some provisions for the individual who was going to be the surrogate because they understood that when a husband had relations with someone else outside of the spouse that this is going to create obvious problems. And sometimes there are painful consequences when we get what we want. God doesn't always engage in a government bailout program for us. Sometimes he lets us sit in those problems, in the pain, in the suffering. Sometimes he lets it get get much, much worse. Such is the case with Hagar because she she gets pregnant and, and she develops this this pregnant glow, 
And uh, you know what I mean when I say the pregnant glow? When, it, when a new mom becomes pregnant, there's just this, this glow, this happiness about her. And it's not sinful. It's not boastful. She's just got this, this joy about her in becoming pregnant. And now uh, Sarai is desensitized from the humanity of Hagar and her unborn child. And she gets very, very angry. When this happens, Hagar now becomes the innocent victim. Look at verse 4 with me. He slept with Hagar. She became pregnant. I'm going to push pause right there. She became pregnant like right away here. So how do you think that makes Sarai feel? Like this is, this is like validation that she has, uh, she is the one that is perpetuating this problem. When she, sees, when she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress being uh, 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 Hagar became contemptible to Sarai. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Now, isn't it true that when things don't go our way, and we so wanted them to, and they don't go the expected way, we easily jump to illogical conclusions. We start making things in our mind from stewing on them, and all of a sudden reality is not even what what is true anymore. When we take matters into our own hands and reap the consequences, other people then become the object of our vitriol when we're the ones that screwed up. The text says that Sarai couldn't handle the fact that Hagar had this, this glow to her, and she ends up looking at Hagar in, in, uh, in, in more of a, uh, an angry way. But what does she tell her husband? Oh, Hagar, she looks at me contemptibly. She thinks I'm the problem. What are we going to do now? We're stuck with this slave who is prideful. And there's no indication here that Hagar provoked Sarai at all. But that's what sin does. Sarai blames Abram. She blames Hagar. And instead of protecting the mother of his child, now Abram simply tells Sarai, she's your property. Do whatever you want with her. Again, passive. And so the text says that she mistreated Hagar. And the word mistreated there is the same word that's used in the Exodus of how the Egyptians treated the Israelites. So essentially we can say that Sarai is abusing Hagar here. And Hagar does the only thing that she can think of, and it's understandable. She flees, and it, has to, it, it forces us to ask the question, well, what now of the promise? This is supposed to be his child. And in Sarai's attempt to solve the problem, she has completely derailed the whole entire uh, program of what is happening here. How true is that of us? When we manipulate, when we shortcut, we find that we actually ruin it or make it worse. So what should we do instead? 
I think the, the opposite of this is that we should wait on God. We ought to exercise patience in who he is and what his plan is for us. Even if it is for a lifetime, we wait on him. You know, uh, David in Psalm 13 very much writes this out for us. In Psalm 13, David writes, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? Have any of you ever felt like that before? How long do I have to take counsel in myself? By the way, we're about our worst counselors when we counsel ourselves. He's perplexed and he's suffering because he doesn't see God coming through. But his solution isn't like Sarai. Rather, he embraces the pain. He embraces the suffering and he puts it into godly patience. He says in in the next couple verses, but I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. So while David waits in agony, what does he do? He trusts, he rejoices, he sings, because God has treated him very, very well. He worships. So what about you? Do you look back and remember that because Christ lived, died, raised, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven, that have you found that God's will is not always getting your way in this life? It's about God making you to be the person he has called you to be. Do you take solace in the fact that because the Holy Spirit is given to us, that we don't have to be impatient with God's plan? Friends, God is good to us all of the time. And so because he is working in us in the tough times of waiting, we can certainly wait on him because he is making us be who he wants us to be. It is in those times by which we should take our faith out of the microwave and into the slow cooker. So that's the first thing that we need to do. But the second thing we need to also take note of is that we ought to just trust God's plan. Even in the midst of suffering. Trust God's plan even in the midst of suffering. Now notice that Hagar, she's running off by all appearances. She's, she is fleeing to Egypt. And if, and if you were familiar with the geography of the lower part of uh, Canaan and where Egypt is and where Abram is, it's clear that, that Sarai, uh, not Sarai, Hagar, she's traveled a long distance here. Uh, here's this pregnant gal, and she's running through the desert, and she's been gone for quite a while. But she meets the angel of the Lord. And it, it's debated, but I, I, would, I would say this is probably a, a visible manifestation of God, and she's confronted with Yahweh, who is the omniscient one. And, and notice that he knows her name. He didn't say, who are you? He knows her name. 
He knows her occupation. He knows that she is a, a slave. And he makes then, because he knows her, he makes himself known to her in her pain, in her heartache, in her suffering. He shows himself to be real. He asks about her situation. It's not as if he doesn't know that she's running away or that she's having a difficult time here, but he wants to hear it. It's the same thing that he did with, with Adam and Eve in the garden. He knew what they had done, but he wants Adam to come to grips with what he had done. And here in the wilderness, God forces Hagar to come to grips with her reality. And it's not to punish her. It's to minister to her. It is to love her, to care for her. We don't like to talk about our issues with anyone. And oftentimes we are afraid to go to God with our struggles. But here we have to see that God is uh, more willing to hear about your issues and your struggles than you are willing to vocalize it. He wants to hear from you. Are there things in your life right now that you are repressing, that you are not wanting to deal with, hoping that by not thinking about them, that they'll just go away? They're not going to go away. God wants to hear it. It does no good just to bury it. God wants to know your heart. Look in verse 8. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. And the angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and you will have a son. You will name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. Notice that she did not say anything about her pregnancy. She may be showing, I'll give her that, but here the Lord, he just knows. And he gives her insight into her child. He's going to be a boy. He's going to be named Ishmael. And every time that she looks at that child or says his name, she is going to be reminded of the fact that uh, God's goodness came to her in her affliction in a time when she desperately needed it. And he goes on to the, talk about the, the future of this son of hers and and moms, pay special notice to this because this is a great thing for someone to tell you before your son is born. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all of his relatives. This makes it extra special if you read it in the King James Version, by the way. So moms, how would you feel 
uh, if uh, you had someone say something like that to you in your pregnancy, go for your 20-week ultrasound and find out it's a boy, oh, guess what, your, your son, this guy's going to be a real jerk. And everyone's going to be against him. But notice, Hagar doesn't pay any attention to this at all. Why? Because she is so overwhelmed by the fact that God actually took notice of her, a slave girl. And because of God's great love for her, nothing else seems to matter to her. In fact, she is so struck that she does something that nobody else in the entire Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, nobody else does this. She names God. She gives him a name. She calls him Elroy, the God that she has seen and the God that has seen her. You know, we may not see a visual manifestation of God, but he has indeed come in his grace and mercy. He has come in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. And in Christ, we have beyond what Hagar had. We have not a God who simply sees, but we have a God that has been through these things himself. Jesus experienced rejection. Jesus experienced grief. Jesus experienced suffering. Jesus experienced mistreatment. And because he went through all of these different things, he walks with us in those times of grief, in those times of rejection, in those times of mistreatment. In Christ, we have a God that doesn't just see our affliction, but one who puts his arm around us and picks us up and brings us to where we need to be. This is so much more beyond what Hagar had the privilege of. You see, the gospel doesn't just save us from our sins, but the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us, brings us to calmer shores. It wraps us up like a blanket and takes care of our sin-sick souls so we can know him better, love him more, and become more like him. Do you know this, God? Do you know this Redeemer? There are times that you and I will experience that we will find out that Jesus is all we need because we have nothing else. Oftentimes it's when we have no, nothing else or no one else to go to that we find that Jesus is all we truly need. And we can anchor ourselves in faith because Jesus sees us, he has compassion, and he acts on our behalf. What a savior. What a friend we have in this Jesus. 
And because Hagar met this God who sees, look at the extent of her trust in verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. Excuse me. No one likes to suffer. But God tells her to go back to Sarai. Why? No one in their right mind would ever tell someone to go back to their abuser. But I think here, it is forcing Hagar to trust God completely. God sends her, and oftentimes us, into difficult situations in order to bring up our level of trust in him. But he always does so in hope. Here, the promise of Ishmael is the hope she can endure because he has promised her a a son and a future. She can go through this because God has shown her the rainbow at the end of the storm. Now, God has done the same for us who suffer. When we are in Christ, when we have trusted in his goodness, when we, then we can endure any trial because we have the promise of what's to come. Are there situations that we need to remove ourselves from? Yes. I would never tell anyone that comes to me to go back to their abuser. There's no way that that would happen. But here God is saying that there are situations in which we need to trust him more because it is in Christ that we have a future hope. If you've spent time in Genesis, you sort of know the end of the story, uh, that Ishmael will not be the promised heir. He'll be born, he'll be part of the story, he'll, he'll uh, make the conflict be a little bit worse at times. But notice how this incident ends. Look in verse 15. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son. Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 year old, years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Whose name is missing? Sarai. She's totally out of the picture at this point anyway. She was willing to do anything to make this happen and now she's out of the picture. She's left out. She missed it. And this is what happens when we sinfully take the reins. But Sarai's redemption is the same as Hagar's and it's the same for me and it is the same for you. She will be restored by the Lord's grace who sees the plight of those that he loves and he acts. And we're going to see that in Sarai's life. And in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be restored too. Whatever, wherever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you're running to, whatever you're running away from, God is keeping pace with you gently 
lovingly calling you back. Will you resist shortcutting his grace and trust in his plan to make you more like Christ? I learned something this week. I learned that you have to be careful about how you microwave vegetables. Instead of just putting them in a bowl and turning, turning it on, which is typically what I do, I read that you should add just a little bit of water. Because when you just throw vegetables into the microwave, what happens in that process is that all of the, the nutrients sort of leak out and they, they don't stay in the vegetables. Now, I think vegetables are delicious, but I think I would also be safe to say that no one would eat vegetables if they didn't have health benefits. But that's what it's like when we microwave faith. It loses its goodness. It loses its nutritional value. It loses its purpose. Faith is not meant to be realized right now. It is meant to be slow, cooked, in patience, to perfection. And when we patiently wait on Christ, even if it is a difficult wait, he is slowly, little by little, inch by inch, making his will perfect in us to be more like him. Is your faith in the microwave this morning? Take it out. Put it in the slow cooker and turn it on low. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we want to ask God that you would give us your patience. Lord, you are the God of perfect patience. We're not even close to that. And so, Father, whatever we're experiencing in our lives, whatever we're hoping for, whatever we're uh, looking forward to, God, let us do it in your way, in your plan. Lord, we want to ask that you would help us to repent of those times, maybe even right now, in which we're trying to shortcut things. Maybe we're trying to, to cheat our way through something. Maybe we are trying to... Um, do some things in the way that you would not be honored by. Lord, help us to turn from those things and turn to the one in whom we have life that all of our spiritual nourishment comes from. Help us go to Christ. Give us that life, Lord. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we uh, respond? to God's word.